Good morning. Let's get straight to markets. Take a look at the impact for the indices. Factual. Succinct. All you need to know before your trading day starts. Subscribe to our newsletter, CNBC's Daily Open. Beyond the Valley. Hello and welcome to another episode of CNBC's Beyond the Valley. I'm Arjun Karpal in Guangzhou, China. Hope you're all staying safe from wherever you are listening from. I want to tackle quite a big topic today, and that's the future of the internet. Stick with me. You may have heard some terms floating around recently. Splinternet, decoupling, bifurcation of the internet. These terms are all referencing how the future of the internet and services we use might look. We're in a situation now where the US and China are engaged in a trade war that is increasingly focused on technology. We've seen the US wage a campaign against some of China's technology giants such as Huawei and even its critical chip maker SMIC. The US has also threatened bans on apps like TikTok owned by Chinese company ByteDance as well as messaging service WeChat which is run by Tencent. Of course, in China, already a number of foreign sites and services such as Google and Facebook have effectively been blocked for some time. But this idea of some sort of splinternet, that the internet could split into different silos, one run by the US and another by China, has been gaining steam recently. And I really want to explore this idea on Beyond the Valley, because it's more complicated than that. It goes beyond just the US and China and just the apps we use. There are some pretty big implications when we start talking about things like how data is moved around the world, or standards of different technologies which could fundamentally affect the way you and I interact and use technology. There is a so-called technology stack, from your infrastructure to data to apps, and all these different layers could experience some sort of splintering effect, and that could be huge. I've got two interesting guests for you on the podcast, and I want to kick off the conversation with Paul Triolo. He is the head of the geotechnology practice at Eurasia Group. His focus is on global technology policy issues and emerging technologies. I started our conversation by asking how he defines the splinternet. You know, we've already had a, historically, we've, there's already been a, 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 a bit of a split in, um, in, in sort of how the internet is regulated and 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 um and operated in different countries of course in China for some time since you know for about the last decade we've had US large US platforms like Google um and social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter basically blocked there um through various me- methods um so China in some sense one can argue has, has already sort of Helped to, to to push this idea of a splinter net, at least at the content level. Um, but I think recently what we've seen is sort of more portions of the, what we might call the technology stack become part of this of this split. And you know, there's we can we can talk about all the different different areas. But obviously, it's something like some really important supporting infrastructure like 5G mobile networks, for example, are clearly one of the areas where we're going to see a fairly major split um, in the world between countries that are you know, not just U.S. and China, but more broadly, countries that are going to be using you know, Western equipment um, for that and countries that are going to be using Chinese um, uh, or origin equipment. So so this, the splinter net then is, is this, um, you know, it's, it's a concept. It's, it's sort of been around. I think the question is how deep it goes. How quickly and, you know, whether we do really get, um, two very different and interoperable or non-interoperable, um, ecosystems. And people can kind of remember this if you think back to the, to like 3G mobile, where, um, we had two differing standards in Europe. 
in the U.S. and China. Um, and so you couldn't really roam uh, on your mobile phone. And, and, and you know, you had to have a, another phone that was, a, that was operating with a different standard. And so um, at one level, I think, you know, we can live with countries like the U.S. and China and the EU. We can live with, um, you know, not using the same search engine, not using the same social media platforms. But I think as it goes, as we go deeper into the stack, it creates a lot of problems for both individuals in terms of things like roaming and, and getting access seamlessly to, to the internet around the world. And then for businesses, even more important, um, you know, they, they prefer to operate, um, globally on a sort of standard platform that they can, um, adjust, you know, minimally for regulatory differences in countries. But the real change, I think, is going to be farther down in the stack where, um, where you're going to start running into op- real, real interoperability problems. So that's the way I think about it broadly. Um, and the U.S. China, you know, whatever you want to call it, tech cold war, tech conflict is really critical to this because, um, you know, there, there's two such huge markets and, and, and there's such huge, um, reservoirs of company innovation and, and just users, um, you know, the, just the sheer number of users on both sides and the sort of innovation capacity. So if those two countries are sort of pursuing their own paths, um, uh, you know, even deeper than, than they have been previously, and particularly China, then I think, um, you know, that we're all going to lose <laughs> because just the inefficiencies of creating multiple different you know, uh, pieces of the stack, um, that are, that are, that are duplicative in some sense or don't allow interoperability is really going to be bad for, for a whole bunch of things, um, uh, and, and innovation in particular. And then, you know, just sort of ease of use of, um, of the internet going forward. So we can delve down a little bit into sort of the different parts of the stack. And because I think their decoupling occurs, is occurring at different rates and different levels and under different pressures in each part of that tech stack. And I think this is where we need to get more nuanced about the idea of a splinternet. You heard Paul Triolo there reference a technology stack, and that's a good thing to look at. Yes, you have your apps and your services, but they rely on other things like the telecommunications infrastructure, the technical standards that allow these to work and work with each other, something known as interoperability. But these services also require data to move around. Standards and data flows are two of the most important factors behind technologies that we use and two that could be susceptible to some sort of splintering. I want to start with data first. This is really at the heart of some of the issues between countries. The US government, for example, is concerned about some national intelligence laws in China that appear to compel Chinese firms to aid Beijing with vaguely defined intelligence work. That could mean that companies could be forced to hand over data if asked. This is an argument Washington has used against the likes of Huawei and other Chinese firms to portray them as a national security threat. These companies have denied they would ever hand over data to the Chinese government. Meanwhile, Europe and the US are at odds over data. Europe and the US had an agreement known as the Privacy Shield. This is a framework to provide companies on both sides of the Atlantic with a mechanism to comply with the data protection requirements when transferring personal data from the European Union and Switzerland to the United States. This agreement is used by thousands of companies. 
But the European Court of Justice, the EU's top court, struck the agreement down earlier this year, saying that it does not protect the privacy of European citizens. The concern in this case was some of the laws the US has around surveillance of citizens. The court was concerned that US law fails to protect people's personal data from government surveillance in the same way European law does. Meanwhile, some countries have also been pushing for data localization. That essentially means companies having to store the data of a certain country's citizens on servers located in that nation. That could create its own problems. Paul Triolo weighs in on the importance of data and what role it could play in the splinternet. I think uh, in trying to get at the, the nub of that issue, where we're going, I think the data issue and data governance issue is really going to be the critical thing here in terms of how far we we, we split, we get a split, uh, in, you know, a splinter net or some, you know, fragmentation of the, of, of the, of the, of cyberspace. Um, and that's because, um, there's an increasing sense in the U.S. and in Europe that, that like-minded countries, for example, should get together and, um, and sort of set new standards around data. Um, and it's tricky because part of this, this will be perceived, any effort to do that would be perceived by China and other countries like Russia as an attempt to exclude uh, countries from from a sort of club of democracies that are trying to sort of set the new rules around around data. Um, but there is there, you know, there does seem to be a lot of momentum behind this because um, uh, because of this fear that that um, uh, in many countries that that that, um, you know, there needs to be at least a, a, a common approach to how governments access data, for example, and the U.S. and the EU are talking about that right now under the privacy shield um, arrangement and trying to solve that. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the sense that, that, that there has to be a really high standard around data privacy and countries that meet that then would be would be part of the club. You've seen Japan, for example, already um, get a get a very interesting adequacy determination from the EU that they're. Their system for protecting data is is you know in, is in keeping with European standards. The U.S. and the EU, I think, are a little more at odds, but eventually, I think they will come together, like-minded countries, you know, with similar legal systems and and traditions. Um, and then um, at that point, having decided um, how data is going to be going to be accessed by governments and how data is going to going to flow across borders and under what legal structures, then the problem will be that 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 bar will be really hard for for China. Um, and other countries like Russia to meet. And so even though it could be spun as we're setting higher standards and then China needs to meet those, it will be really seen, I think, as an attempt to really split the Internet. Because then um, if you're a company operating in um, in Europe and the U.S. under very strict uh, data, data protection standards, then um, it'll be very difficult for you to operate in China. Um, and so, you know, and, and China may requ require data localization uh, and, and, you know, we're, 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 as countries start to, to, to enforce data localization laws, you know, U.S. Western, Western companies will simply choose not to operate there. And that could that could happen in a place like China, um, where basically U.S. companies um, decide to pull out. And then you and then China would be would would, you know, under those circumstances would, would begin to really become much more isolated on the, on the, on the, on the global internet, um, as it already is to some degree around content, as we've seen. Um, so that, that process, I think, is, 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 gonna, is somewhat inevitable um, over the next several years. It's going to take time, right? This is going to not, not be an easy, it's not going to be like switching off a light, but um, as, com as companies decide to, 
that they simply can't operate in uh, in, in countries where they can't uh, they feel like they can't operate under the same data protection principles as in as in uh, Europe or the U.S. You know they will make the they will probably decide to um, uh, to, to whether they they want to stay in, the, in 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 a place like China or Russia. These uh, as as these things play out um, and and and. Uh, governments attempt to ban the use of, of certain applications or ban the use of um, or, or ban the ability of, of companies to operate in one country uh, to communicate with another country with the other country. You know, th- these are these start eroding um, individuals and companies ability to sort of do business day to day. And so they're real, real world impacts. And I think that TikTok and WeChat were sort of maybe just the tip of the iceberg here. We'll get right back to the conversation after this short message. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. The next point to think about in regards to the splinternet is standards. Technologies and industries around the world have standards that define how they work and their interoperability around the world. Interoperability refers to the ability for two or more systems to work together. The telecommunications industry is a good example. New networks such as 5G aren't just turned on. They take years of planning and development. Technical standards are created through collaboration between industry bodies, experts and companies. Traditionally, European and American and Japanese experts and companies have been quite strong in the area of setting technology standards. But more recently, particularly in telecoms, China has been upping its game. The country is set to release a plan called China Standards 2035, which will lay out its strategy in emerging areas of technology around standards. Standards are created through standards bodies. These are organizations that bring together academics, experts, and companies. On a previous episode of Beyond the Valley, we discussed the standards process and how it is effective in stopping undue influence. So while there is concern about the growing influence of China on the standards process, experts suggest that China won't necessarily be able to dominate how standards look. And many of the current standards around key technologies, say 5G, have already been set. However, looking forward, there are a lot of standards that haven't been created yet. Things like driverless cars, or facial recognition, and other areas of artificial intelligence. How could standards play into a splintering of the internet? I asked Abhishek Prakash, a geopolitical specialist at the Centre for Innovating the Future, a Toronto, Canada-based consulting firm. The idea that there can be global standards for technology is a pipe dream. And I shared this a few years ago when the UN was meeting to discuss autonomous weapons. And I said that what incentive do countries like China or Russia or Iran have in following the UN and abiding by the UN rules on killer robots? And that meeting ended with complete disarray as to how to move forward. The reality is that the era of global standards that we've all grown up with was an era when the entire world looked to the West for leadership. So whatever emerged in Washington or London or Paris became not just the Western standards, but the global standards. That era is now over. 
And that's why we're seeing China come out with its own push for data standards. We're even seeing TikTok come out with its own proposal for a global coalition to essentially monitor and control social media activity. We're seeing Germany come out with the world's first ethics for self-driving cars. And this is all now splintered. This is all now divided. There's no global consensus. There's no global understanding that these are the standards that need to be adopted. Because when it comes to technology standards, it's now also specifically connected to geopolitical power. Whose standards will the world use? Now, there is an area where standards are more challenging and more geopolitically volatile, and that's artificial intelligence. For the past several years, Chinese firms have been quietly working with the UN to build the global standards for facial recognition. And this now is going to become the new battlefield. And in the past, while it was the Chinese or the Russians that ignored the Western institutions, now because of the Chinese influence in these institutions, it could be the West ignoring them. And that leads to the big gray area of where will countries go for leadership? Will they create their own organizations, their own coalitions, or will they turn inwards? And will we see nations become incredibly protectionist over standards? Oh, what does that effectively mean then for, for the technology we use or the real world applications of technology? It means that every company, country and city will be operating on a different fault line. And this makes geopolitics more personal than ever before. When it was geopolitics of oil or natural gas, these were variables that only a few countries and companies cared about. But you or I, the app that we access, if it's defined by the standards of another country, and those standards define what we can or can't do, then we may start making decisions about what app to use and what app not to use. And this is goes far bigger than that. Take, for example, facial recognition. Facial recognition currently is being deployed around the world for policing. Now, if the standards for facial recognition are being developed and built by China, then could there be a certain bias inputted? Will there be a geopolitical bias? We talk about bias right now as gender or religion or age or ethnicity. But what about a geopolitical bias that emerges whereby the standards change the way algorithms function and certain groups of people are now more at risk from facial recognition systems than in the past? This is a new era of geopolitics that we're all going to really feel. So what does that mean for technology companies themselves? American technology giants have expanded freely around the world for the past few years. Most, however, have not been able to get into China, Apple and Microsoft being the notable exceptions. Meanwhile, Chinese firms, which traditionally have been focusing on their domestic market, have been expanding outward in recent years. Does the current geopolitical environment change that? And what does that mean for the state of the internet? Abhishek Prakash weighs in. Well, there's multiple levels to this tech war. 
The first is taking place in sort of established spheres of influence. U.S. In enforcing its will, if you, if, if you will, in Western Europe and parts of Asia, and China solidifying control over its own market and also its immediate sphere of influence. Now the key battlefields are essentially the whole world, if you think about it. But it's going to start off with parts of Southeast Asia, the UAE and Saudi Arabia in the Middle East, parts of South America and key markets in Africa like Kenya, Ethiopia and Nigeria. Arguably, China has been making headway in respects that most of the world has missed. And one example is with Malaysia. For the past 70 years, the U.S. has been taking its technology around the world, but it's taken the U.S. decades to achieve this. Now, look at the way Chinese AI has spread in Malaysia in the past 18 months from Alibaba exporting CityBrain to Chinese facial recognition cameras for, for Malaysian law enforcement to SenseTime creating a $1 billion AI park. All of a sudden, Malaysia is being dominated by Chinese AI on a timeline that's minuscule compared to the time it's taken the US. So the regions that we're seeing are not only volatile, but the speed at which China is moving at to take its technology is unprecedented. At the moment, you mentioned also the US sort of exerting its will to some extent. You, you've got obviously this example in Malaysia as well, but then conversely, you've got an example in India, which appears to some extent anyways to have sided with the US on certain issues regarding Chinese um, technology. So Chinese companies right now, how are they navigating this situation? Because they have been keen to push for global expansion over the past few years in various forms, whether it be opening new offices in certain markets, um, you know, in the case of Tencent, for example, investing in gaming companies around the world. Um, so do things like the TikTok sale in the US, for example, make global expansion harder, as well as the broader US campaign against Chinese technology? Well, Chinese technology firms have been expanding for the past many years with the expectation that they are going to play by the same rules as everybody else. In fact, for the most part, it's, it hasn't even been an afterthought. It's been an expectation that if German companies and Japanese companies and American companies are operating a certain way, then why not Chinese? And the system and the platforms and the integration has allowed China to operate on a largely level playing field compared to other nations, globally speaking. Now in the past 12 months, a new geopolitical reality has emerged for Chinese firms that they're no longer being they're no longer playing by the same rules, that they're being forced to do things that nobody else has done before. Now, it's quite ironic that what the US is doing to Chinese firms like TikTok is exactly what China has been doing to American firms for decades now. And this leads to a different ethos in the West that the West has been centered on pillars like access to markets, 
access to talent, open commerce. And in the era where technology is driving geopolitics, the West is retreating from these ideals and is becoming more protectionist, more closed off, and more restrictive. And so the corporate strategies of Chinese companies is now changing in the sense that they know that they can't operate in the West on an equal playing field and that their business model is essentially being hijacked by geopolitics. And now their focus is going to be on key battlefields like those in Southeast Asia and the Middle East. So the rules of engagement have changed somewhat. And that's interesting, of course, because we've got to also remember that China has the Belt and Road Initiative and will be keen, no doubt, to spread their technology across some of the con countries involved in that. And we've already seen some of that uh, as well. I mean, for the U.S. technology companies, is there a risk we get a situation where they might find it hard to expand or face some sort of similar blocks in some of the closest allies to China? Absolutely. The U.S. foreign policy right now towards technology largely resembles U.S. foreign policy of the past in the sense that the U.S. is trying to push the world in a certain direction, except the world is a fundamentally different place today. It's not the same as it once was. The U.S. is no longer the only dominant power. And that means that American companies don't have the ability to expand freely and do whatever they want in the face of their competitors being forced to sell or face a ban. And this means that China may now turn to initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative or may leverage institutions like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to create a new economic reality and a new industry reality for American and Western firms, from the Chinese point of view, its most iconic technology firms are under siege and it hasn't responded yet. And when China does choose to respond, it's going to have the same objective, which is to take on the US commercial interests too. So we can see by now that there are so many layers to this idea of the splinternet, from the app layer to the infrastructure and data layer. The future is not certain, however. But one thing that is for sure at this point in time is that Chinese technology firms are under pressure. Two more recent examples include reported US sanctions on SMIC, China's largest chip maker. This company is seen as, as really critical to China's ambitions to become more self-reliant in semiconductors. Semiconductors underpin so many technologies. Another example is the report that the US is exploring some kind of restrictions on Ant Group and Tencent, two of China's largest financial technology players. Is decoupling inevitable? And how long will it take if so? Abishur had this to say. The way the splinternet or this decoupling is going to take place is not going, it's not going to happen over the next 12 to 18 months. And it's not going to change based on the US presidential election. What the Chinese have realized when the US sanctioned SMIC is that the time for talk and dialogue has come to an end. Unlike Huawei or ByteDance, which were companies, SMIC was a foundation for China to build 
AI and self-driving cars and autonomous capabilities for its military. The US has attacked the heart of China. And so now the Chinese have one objective, which is to disconnect from American technology as fast as they can. But this is not easy. This is going to take time. A way to understand that is that the Chinese chip industry is where the Chinese software industry was a decade ago. That's the time scale that we're working on years, if not decades, that China now is going to play rapid catch up to develop its own independence from software to servers to semiconductors. At the same time, China is working on other initiatives that are going to divide the world. China is heavily investing in blockchain and it's investing in blockchain not for efficiency, but because it wants to rewire the way the world does commerce. And that's why the recent suggestion that the White House could take on Ant Group and Tencent for their payments systems is incredibly powerful because these companies are investing in blockchain a lot. So the splinter net is taking place alongside multiple avenues and at the same time is affecting different actors in the world in different ways. That's one area to think about. Now we have to come to the corporate competition. Yesterday, geopolitics was about countries. Going forward, especially as this splinter net accelerates, technology companies are going to become the new driving force of geopolitics. It's companies like Alibaba and Amazon who are going to be making decisions that have huge geopolitical ramifications from who they, who they export AI to, to the kind of talent that they hire, to the kind of investments they make, these are the new geopolitical players. And if they now decide that certain regions of the world are off limits, that now increases this decoupling and raises this digital iron curtain. That was a longer than usual episode. Thanks for sticking with me. It's certainly a lot of ground to cover for what is a very complex topic. It's worth mentioning that nothing is for certain. If a bigger splintering of the internet does occur, there are still so many questions, like how long will it take? Or what exactly will it look like? We've tried to explore some of those scenarios on this episode of Beyond the Valley, but I'd also love to get your thoughts on the topic. Drop me a line. I'm on Twitter at Arjun Karpal. That's it for another episode of CNBC's Beyond the Valley. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. Beyond the Valley.